Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Claude Jennings. How are you? Dr. Bennett, how are you? I'm good. Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that helps you translate Trump in case you think he needs translation. Mm -hmm. I guess Bill Barr thinks... We'll we'll, we'll talk about that. Joining me today is Chester E. Finn. I call him Checker Finn. He worked for me. He's a distinguished senior fellow and president emeritus of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, senior fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He is the most well-informed person on American education and has been for the last 25 years. He's a Harvard graduate and um, pretty conservative guy. I think he's a Democrat, but I think he's a pretty conservative guy. He's not a Trump guy, but uh, he's very sensible otherwise. (laughs) <laughs> we're going uh we're going to talk about uh the book he and his uh, colleague mike petrilli put together how to educate in america and the conservative vision for tomorrow's schools i have an essay in that book i should right. say full disclosure but uh, before we do that a couple things i'd like to discuss um bill barr i mentioned uh the intro of the show uh he's a friend of mine mm-hmm. i don't talk to him often mrs bennett talks to mrs barr christine barr more often than i talk to bill he's a very busy guy i think he's a very substantial guy sure I like the look too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, I like the rumpled look. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean he's a big rumpled guy. Sure, uh-huh. and I kind of identify with. Him. <laughs> Very strong attorney general. Mm-hmm. I don't think he plans to quit. It it made me nervous, as I've said on a couple in a couple of forums, fora that um, when he said, you know, the president's tweeting makes it impossible for me to do my job. Right. That the next sentence was, you know, when you say it's impossible to do your job. I'm not going to do my job. Yeah. I'm leaving. Right. But he didn't. But there are all these rumors about him leaving. I don't think so. He's taken a fair amount of incoming, and I understand, and I kind of agree with him about, uh, not kind of agree, I agree with him that it does make his heart, life more difficult. And I think the president agrees with him that the president's sure, tweets no, make absolutely. his life more difficult. Sure. The president can't stop mm-hmm. doing it. Uh, the uh, day that story broke, it was an ABC interview that Pierre Thomas did with uh, Attorney General Barr, which he said how difficult uh, the president's tweets made him doing his job. Um they interviewed, uh, on Fox, they interviewed Mitch McConnell, and Brett Baer asked him what he thought of that. Mitch McConnell said three times, not once, not twice, but three times, well, well, the president, uh, you know, wanted Bill Barr to be his attorney general. Mm-hmm. He was nominated, he was confirmed, and uh, the president should listen to him. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? He should listen to him, he should take his advice. So, anyway, that was Mitch McConnell. The <laughs> uh, president needs to be careful when he's talking about a criminal case. Let's talk about the case of Roger Stone here, other cases. Best to kind of lay off it. It's not that he's the first one to do it. I mean, Obama did it in that Skip Gates case, the Harvard professor, you remember, with a cop? Yeah. Went into his house and so on. Uh, and, you know, uh, President Obama talked about Hillary. You know, I don't think she did anything wrong. But uh, it's best for presidents to avoid uh, avoid this. But I just, I just would say this. He's maybe the best or one of the two or three best people you have. I'd put Mike sure, Pompeo right. up there. Mm-hmm. Don't make his life more difficult, sir. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all. Yeah. And, and, and a lot a lot is coming his way. A lot's going on in his life. Two other things, uh, th- or three other things I want to say. Uh, I read an essay that was sent to me by our friend Chris Beach. Do you remember him? Yes, I do remember Chris He's Beach. the former producer mm-hmm. of the radio show we had called Morning in America. He is uh, chief speechwriter for Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, as David Willisall is right. chief speechwriter for Mike Pompeo. I say with great pride every day. <laughs> as you should. Love as you those should. guys. Yeah. Love those guys. I got a picture from them. They were both in Munich at the security conference. <laughs> really? Yeah, did you see it? No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, they were both in Munich. It was really neat. Wonderful. Uh, Chris uh, sent me an article from The Atlantic about families and the shape of the family. 
Um, there's a lot in there I'd argue with, and the guy who wrote it is a guy I, I argue with a lot, David Brooks, columnist in the New York Times, supposed to be conservative. Maybe his instincts are, but doesn't often come out that way. But he talked about something called reforged families. You know, we had the nuclear family, now the nuclear family's breaking down because you got so many single-parent families. Da, 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 da. But he said there's a new trend, and I didn't know about this. You tell me if you did. Which is that some of the um, families that are now reforming are the kind of old extended family. Hmm. Forty More than 40% of young people who are buying houses tell realtors they'd like to, if possible, have room for moving in an elderly relative. Huh. 45% or something like that of elderly people buying houses tell realtors they'd like to have room for younger people, their children, or, huh. their, you know. Uh, so there seems to be not, um, by necessity, which used to be the case, you know, on the farm or elsewhere that, um, uh, you know, that you had this extended families, you need, you needed a lot of kids, you need to do a lot of work, but sure. this sort of willing and voluntary, uh, bringing of the family back together and the generations back together. I had no idea the numbers were that high. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, no, it is. I had no idea the numbers were that high either. So look for that. It's called Reforged Families okay. is the term, and it's in the current issue of The Atlantic by David Brooks. Take a look at it. Um, it it kind of hits on conservatives, you know, who are always championing the nuclear family, which, you know, I believe in. I, I certainly don't believe nuclear families should necessarily be free of, a, of other adults, though. Sure. You know, like grandparents. <laughs> right. You're a very close relationship. Oh, absolutely. With um, your, your son's grandparents. Oh, absolutely. No, 100%. And, um, you know, you... you we, we joke with, with you about Thanksgiving and other days where you get in your car and go see, you know, mother-in-law and yeah. aunts and mother and everybody, and you get your plate loaded up. You right. Know, well, so. I mean, we have a 93-year-old grandmother, my mother's mother. Okay. And And uh, what it was, maybe two uh, years ago, we had a family meeting, and we moved my grandmother to a house one block away from my mom. We all pitch in uh, monthly. Well, most of us pitch in monthly on the call. Okay. But I won't bring that up. We have to have another family meeting. Yeah, about the possibility. Yeah, okay. and, and we rotate days by which people go and uh, take care of grandma. And, you know, my mom takes a brunt of it because she lives down the street. But my brother's in on it and my stepdad, my cousins and aunts. And so nice. I mean, we, we get it. We get it. So uh, we'll see. I mean, you see endless advertising for retirement. Places, you know, sure, absolutely. Uh, room for mom or a place for mom, Joan London, you know, where you're going to ship mom off to. And a lot of families looking at that, but interestingly, more and more families are saying, well, we'll, we'll take them in, we'll build, sure. a, build a little wing here. Mm -hmm. So, I uh, know we know a lot of people thinking about that. Uh, you get another pair of hands or another, you know, another, another set of ears and eyes, sure, yeah, babysitter, right. no, that's right, yeah, advice, <laughs> other things, cook, you know. So, um, uh, so I, I find that a very interesting trend. Uh, you know, this may counter what our friend Kay Heimowitz has written about, which is one of the most pervasive problems in American life for the elderly, loneliness, mm. being alone. Right, I'm sure. They don't want to be alone. I remember Mother Teresa in an interview once said that the, um, you know, you can have all the money in the world, and she went to some retirement place where her folks were in Europe. Mm-hmm. And she comes from a lot of money. She gave it all up, of course, to become a nun, go to India. But she said no matter how much money or affluence these grandparents have when they're separated from their children and grandchildren, the thing that matters the most to them is the knock on the door. Oh, sure. Absolutely. In the hopes that the door will open, it'll be their children or grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And um, 
as kind of cruelty to deny the presence, the existence mm-hmm. um, of such of such folks in your children's lives, or your grandchildren's lives. Right. Anyway, interesting trend. We'll see where it, we'll see where it goes. Um, I'd like to folks listen to this ad, and then I'd like to just briefly comment. Speaks for itself. There is an intersectionality where all points converge. Failing schools lead to fewer opportunities for African-American children. Children growing up without opportunity, fewer jobs, less economic success. If children grow in communities with few chances, that leads to crime. And crime leads to more incarceration. For 50 years, one party has been in charge of the hood. They're against school choice for parents and even vouchers for our children. They favor giving out handouts instead of opportunities. They side with crime bills and prison instead of good education and jobs. Meanwhile, they live well. We don't. All points converge with Democrats. Gangs don't run the hood. Democrats do. New Journey Pack is responsible for the content of this advertising. Paid for by NewJourneyPack.org and not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. I don't know who New Journey Pack is. I haven't looked right. into it. I haven't asked you to, but I think it's a hell of an ad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gangs don't run the hood. The Democrats do. If you look at the big cities, it's Democrat control. And uh, all the solicitude, we're going to get to that Democrat debate toward the minority communities, which is showed on stage every time these guys open their mouths. Haven't done that much for the minority community. You know, they really haven't. And where they're in charge, um, things haven't things haven't been great. So I think that's a that's a very interesting a very interesting and a very interesting angle on the end. Uh, will Democrats answer for this? Any comment? Well, it reminds me of that ad we talked about a few years back when Governor Hogan was running for governor of Maryland, and uh, it was commercial with uh, a black woman sitting at the table talking about her politics over the years and, and family, and then all of a sudden said, you know, I've always voted Democrat. Things haven't gotten better. Why not try Governor Hogan? And uh, that ad, I think, uh, really uh, hit uh, home with a lot of um, African-Americans. And so this reminds me of that. He's now the uh, governor. He is now the governor, exactly. And, um, and yeah, so, so that ad kind of reminds me of, of, of the Hogan ad. Um, and, you know, I think that it's a great point. And, and one point that um, you would assume um, – you know, conservatives would would uh, talk about much more than than, than we see. Um, I'm not sure if if in writing it, I would I would uh, character. I get what they're doing, but I don't know if I would say uh, gangs don't run the hood. I'm not sure if I would use the term hood. Um, okay, uh, only be- for several reasons. I think uh, one, the 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 people you're targeting will feel alienated by using that, I think. I got you. And we get what you're trying to do. So uh, I would stay away from that. But I think everything that he said is 100% correct, obviously. I mean, yeah, okay. you know, you look at some of the crime in impoverished neighborhoods in like Detroit and in Baltimore. Well, they're not run by Republicans. That's a fair point about sensitivity there. But it just struck me. It just, you know, I heard it and went, wow. Yeah, no. It's, it's just, it's targeting it right. It's a great uh, message. So leave the hood out and just say who mm-hmm. runs these places. Absolutely. You might think it's run mm-hmm. by Democrats. Yeah, you know, big, city, like yeah. big cities. Yeah. Name yeah. the cities. Detroit, Baltimore. He's mm-hmm. ran by Democrats. I would name the cities. Yeah, that's very good. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, speaking of uh, Democrats, let's talk about that debate. So, <laughs> oh, that's an interesting reaction. We, we and I have, you and I have not talked about no. it. So this is, you know, this is spontaneous. I don't right. know what you're going to say. Tell me what you thought. 
so if there are any if there are any Democrat voters that were hoping that whoever comes out of the primary and faces President Trump in a general election would would um, keep things above board and wouldn't fight in the mud, as they say President Trump does, that's not going to happen. And they showed it last night that that they're going to they're going to get in the mud, too. Uh, it's and muddy. Oh, my it? goodness. I mean, and it started, I believe, with uh, the Senator Warren. I mean, coming right for Bloomberg. I mean, and um, and I, he, Mayor Bloomberg was shockingly to me more unprepared. Like I didn't feel as if he answered the questions that he knew was going to come. Like yeah. these non-disclosure actually that's going to be brought up. You know, stop and frisk is going to be brought up, and his answers to those fell flat-footed. I think it was interesting to see uh, Mayor Pete and uh, uh, and Amy Klobuchar go go at one another, and she seemed to be really offended by a lot of the things that were said about her. Um, I think Joe Biden looked the best that he's looked so far. Um, but he didn't matter. have to say much. No, yeah. I don't think it yeah. matters. But he didn't have to say much or do much. And uh, Bernie Sanders is going to keep that that percentage of the base that's his. And, um, you know, he was, he was burning. He was, he was uncle Bernie. He was upset. He was yelling, he was screaming. He had a, a, an actual target. I mean, the person, the, 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 the character that he portrays as the one that hurts a middle-class America is, was on the stage with him was Bloomberg. And so we had a punching bag literally on the stage, uh, with him. Um, it, it was just, it was interesting to see the circus. It, yeah. it was really a circus. Who of your friends told you six months ago to be Bernie Sanders? You yeah. were the one that said it's going to be Bernie. Yeah, but you're liberal for most liberal sure. Friends. Oh, the most most liberal of them. But there was among most there was hope that uh, Joe Biden would come through strong mm-hmm. for nothing mm-hmm. else than than the fact that they I, I, he's not they trust they trust old Joe. You know he's yeah. and and for the most part a lot of them are around my age. I mean they they pair Joe Biden with President Obama. That's who when they see Joe Biden they think of the, uh, President Obama, and and I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, Bernie uh, is uh, heading the national polls. Mm-hmm. Um, if he wins Nevada, which I think he will, mm-hmm. um, he's in great shape. If he should win the Democrat primary in South Carolina, which is Biden's firewall, right? He's got it. He's done. He's got it. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I think the the uh, Democratic primary. In South Carolina, it's like 65 or 70% African-American. Right. And if he moves the, those folks to vote for him mm-hmm. rather than Biden, Biden's done. Firewall collapses, burns on fire, burns the ground, and Bernie's in. Oh, right. And then you go, you go to a convention, and there was a question in the debate last night, you know, if, if it's a uh, convention that's, uh, you know, divided and uh, it's a brokered convention, you know, what should we do? Go to the seniors, go to the, you know, the superdelegates. And B- B- Bernie, in response to that question, said no. <laughs> Give it to the person who's got the most. Mm-hmm. So as long as you've got Buttigieg and Klobuchar, which partly explains the arguing and fighting that was going on, uh, in the race, and Biden's still in the race. I'm not sure that matters much, much more, much. Uh, Tom Steyer's in the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's in the race. Um, I'm not sure um, Bloomberg in the race. I'm not, I'm not sure any, anybody else matters. I think he gets right. it. Uh, if he doesn't get it, and the superdelegates all get together, and Bernie's got by far the most delegates, but they don't give it to him, uh, and they say, "Oh no, we need somebody more presentable or less socialist." Mm-hmm. The Bernie <laughs> less socialist. Yeah, the yeah, the the Bernie people will go nuts. 
Yeah, yeah. They'll go nuts. Yeah, they won't want to edge uh, four years ago. They'll definitely go nuts. They'll this go man. nuts They'll this, this time, time, especially if he's got more. They already numbers. feel as if he was screwed out of it. So, um, yeah, no, I think it looks pretty good for him. And therefore, it probably looks pretty good for Trump because I, I just saw one survey of Democrats. You know, what what's the kind of thing that would bother you about a candidate? And one of them was like over 75 years old. That was the majority of people mm-hmm. in the party. Uh, socialistic uh, tendencies, it's like 70% will be bothered. Right. That's Bernie. And I'll tell you, I, you know, you talked about Bloomberg. Everybody's talked about Bloomberg being, you know, unprepared and wasn't ready. I guess that's right. I think he was better in the second half. I, I, li- I like the fact that he said he wasn't embarrassed about the fact that he made money work. Right, hard. 100%. I actually saw a lot of, um, uh, you know, you're watching this and looking at Twitter and all this kind of stuff on social media. I saw a lot of people who I know to be liberal um, actually uh, say they were a little tired of Bernie attacking rich people. Like, what's wrong with being, what's wrong yeah. with having money? What's wrong with being wealthy? What's yeah, wrong with no, it's people That's aspire. the first time that I've seen that. People aspire, and mm-hmm. they think that maybe their kids will be. Exactly. You know. So, so why not? But uh, Bloomberg stood up for himself and said, you know, I'm not, not apologizing for making the money. And he said, you know, what kind of country is this when a guy is running as a socialist um, is, uh, you know, he's got three houses. Right. And Bernie had to answer that. And he's a millionaire. You know, Bernie's right. a millionaire. Right. But um, the other thing is, and Buttigieg kept pushing this. And uh, it's interesting. Buttigieg is a very smooth character. He never loses cool. But saying to Bernie, you haven't explained to me, you know, where you're getting that other $25 trillion. Right. And he still hasn't. Mm-hmm. And that's a big hole. So um, I don't think the Trump campaign would be upset to be facing Bernie uh, in the general election. And I think right now Bernie's the one. I, uh, Bloomberg did not push him, put himself in any better position last no, night. No, I'm not sure he gets dislodged because he can continue to buy ads. Um, as they went to the closing session last night, um, segment of the debate. There was a big ad. Did you see it? Was I it did. was a Bloomberg yeah, ad? I did. <laughs> so you know, he bought he bought this big ad in sure. the middle of the debate, and he'll continue to do that. So um, we'll see. But I think I think it's right now. It's Bernie's to lose. That's what I think. One question about Bloomberg: Do you think it was wise of of him and his advisors to even have him on the debate stage for this one? Because he's not on the Nevada caucus ballot. So why even? Why not just wait until the next one? Uh, I, I, only in retrospect in that he had to get get this one out of his system. Okay. He has to do better next time because he needs to be better for Super Tuesday. Right. Which is a couple of weeks away. Sure. You know? Sure. So um, if, I'd, if, if they'd known how you know weak his answers were going to be, um, maybe they would have pulled him. Mm-hmm. But uh, they had to, you know, he had to go into fire at some point, and this was right. uh, probably better than waiting till. South Car- Eve of South Carolina and sure. pretty close to the eve of... Uh, Don't let that one be your first. Of Super Tuesday, okay. Correct. Okay. Yeah, correct. I was watching, flipping the channels afterwards, and, you know, MSNBC, Fox, CNN, and on CNN, um, interestingly enough, Van Jones brought up the, the point that he doesn't think that the Biden campaign should should count on South Carolina. He says he's not sure how, how firm that firewall is. I just thought that was interesting. And his words, his exact words were, black folks watch the news. They watch television. They know what's Yeah, no, there's a bit of a patronizing of the black community here, you know, like they're frozen, you know, and they're just stuck with Biden. No, they pay attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're listening. They're watching. Right. And, uh, you know, if they don't think uh, Biden's got the juice, they'll go with somebody else. Right. And, uh, you know, you could see Bernie was playing playing an awful lot to the black community, Hispanic Mm -hmm. community, and his remarks and his uh, criticisms. But, uh, man, we'll see. I, you know, they they got a problem. 
um, because there's not a real clear, credible, center-left, you know, highly persuasive person on that stage. Right. And uh, we'll, we'll see how this comes out. Why do you think Elizabeth Warren's not connecting? I think she's too screechy, too okay. schoolmarmish. Um, you know, um, I had some a friend of mine told me a nightmare about her where he was <laughs> n- nine years old in the library and he was, you know, coughing and she came up to him and, you know, <laughs> whacked his fingers. I mean, that's okay. not fair. She didn't really do that. Right. But, <laughs> but that was the that was the place in this guy's mind and imagination. Yeah. She's just too much. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's just too much of a know it all and um I have the Pocahontas thing still. Yeah, is, that's probably. Yeah. And she got way out on her plan, you know, her, her, her health care, health plan, and then didn't know how to defend it. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think, I really just think people hit a saturation point with her. Said right. that's enough and then didn't want to hear her much anymore, mm-hmm. you know. I don't know. I think also she's clearly left. She's not in the center lane. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're passionate about the leftist ideas, go to the real deal. Yeah. Right, why not go to Bernie? Why go halfway? Yeah, why go, yeah, why go halfway? Yeah. You're listening to The Bill Bennett, Show. Bill Bennett Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's welcome Chester E. Finn, Checker Finn, to the show, distinguished senior fellow and president emeritus of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Checker, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Nice to be with you again. How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow Schools, a book that's available right now, correct? Correct. Uh, from Amazon and from the Templeton uh, Foundation Press. Very, very good. Uh, the book is edited by Michael Petrilli, and who's he? Mike Petrilli is the president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, my, my successor in that role, uh, and a good friend and a smart guy with, uh, uh, he'd call it center-right leanings and a lot of interest in education and knowledge about it. And uh, the uh, other editor is Chester E. Finn, and that's you? Right, in this case serving as junior editor who did all the work. Ah, Good. Okay. Good reminder. We'll make sure Mike hears that. The preface is by Senator Lamar Alexander. I have an essay in this book, full disclosure up front. What uh, gave rise to this book, uh, Checker? Why, why did you want to put together a book of essays, How to Educate an American? And again, subtitle is really what tells you, I think, the conservative vision for tomorrow's schools. Why do that? Uh, I think two things. One is the large sense that education reform in America has stalled and needs uh, to sort of be rebooted. Uh, and uh, uh, it, in the past, I mean, the previous uh, rounds of education reform that got some traction and did some good, and you were much involved with them, and I've been much involved with them, uh, had a bipartisan cast to them. And uh, part of the stalling of education reform is the stalling of bipartisanship in the United States. Uh, and so we thought this needed a revisiting, especially by the conservative side of the bipartisan coalition. Additionally, because this is really my second uh, explanation, conservatives Thinking about K-12 education in recent years have, have tended to sort of go go single-minded on school choice as if that was the solution to everything that ails American education and kind of stop thinking about it, just kind of knee-jerk uh, school choice, school choice, school choice. 
And so we thought that it would be a valuable thing for education and also for conservatives to kind of reopen the question of what, uh, how to educate an American. Uh, what, uh, what, what should go into the next round of education reform? What have we lost? What have we lost? What have we lost track of? What do we need to recapture? What do we need to do differently? And so we invited, uh, in the end, 20 uh, uh, individuals, for the most part, not traditional education policy wonks, uh, such as the kinds that Mike and I spend much of our time with, but rather big thinking, public intellectuals, um, serious people who think about uh, society and about uh, conservatism and about uh, citizenship. And so we ended up with, I think, quite a quite a dazzling collection of essays, uh, yours not least among them. Thank you. Um, apart from the merits, this is just a question about filling in the blanks. Is there a need for a, a, a book of essays uh, or you know, even a single book of one essay on a conservative vision because conservatives have been lacking on this vis-a-vis liberals? Again, not the merits. Have liberals filled in the blank? Is there clearly a liberal view of education, K-12, uh, to which uh, uh, you know there's no real alternative or hasn't been up till now from conservatives? Have liberals d- done this job? No. Uh, liberals, who would probably now call themselves progressives, have... Um are, I think, bungling the education reform job now uh, by turning it into what they would call a, a quest for social justice and wokeness and uh, recrimination and uh, retribution and uh, uh, a lot of things that don't have very much to do with teaching and learning or with effective schooling. And to the extent that the education leadership in the country and the reform leadership, such as it is today, is in uh, progressive hands, it's not going to do much good for the kids that aren't learning. Okay. And therefore, further need for re- 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 re-engaging. You said a lot there, and uh, I may want to come back to it, but um, it's more about uh, being woke and uh, equity and justice and so on, and, and we, we see a lot of that. Um, that's the liberal view, or as you say now, the, the progressive view. But uh, I want to come back to something you said earlier, right away, which mm-hmm. is that reform movement may be stalled. Reform, schmaform, I don't care. As What's the state of American education, K-12? Has, are we making progress in the, in, the, in the non-political sense, not progressive, but are we making progress? Are we doing better than we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Well, that's part of what's also stalled, not just the reform energy, but the actual achievement um, and evidence of achievement. No, we're, we're mostly flat and um, and saying that way. There were in the early aughts and in the nineties to a degree there were some gains, mostly in early grades, more in math than in reading, um, and some gap closing, um, as some uh, minority and low income uh, kids did better. But everything's kind of kind of plateaued and at the at a low level and at the high school Nothing's been gained, actually, except a kind of fake increase in graduation rates. That is to say, graduation rates going up, but student learning not going up. All sorts of evidence of that, both domestic and international. And so, no, we're we're still in a bad way in terms of educational performance in the United States, which is a pretty good reason why 
why the stalling of the reform effort is a big problem. Yeah. Give us a sense, just, uh, I know this is a uh, you know, boilerplate for you, but remind the audience, just give us some numbers or indicators in terms of that lack of progress. Where do we stand? Where did we stand 30 years ago? Where we stand in relation to other countries? Whatever favorite numbers come into your head here. Well, in, in, in terms of other countries, sort of advanced industrial countries, the best metric for the last oh, 20 years is the PISA uh, test done by the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development in Paris, and uh, basically we're sort of dead in the middle or lower middle on those results among 15-year-olds around the countries similar to our own in all three subjects that uh, PISA measures, which is math, uh, science, and uh, reading, basically, literacy. On our own domestic national assessment, I think the most uh, telling uh, fact is that if you look to see how many kids are achieving at the proficient level, uh, it's only about a third across the board, uh, and two-thirds aren't proficient, and only about 7-8% are, are at the advanced level, and a very large number, often as many as 40%, are below the basic level, which is pretty close to illiterate and non-functional in a modern, in a modern economy. You've so seen the three uh, levels from the, I believe, the National Assessment, Educational Progress, yeah. Basic, Proficient, and Advanced. That's correct. Okay. And, and, and we're, again, there were modest gains, um, which have now flattened off, and the, 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 and flattened off at this low level where a third, a third to 40% of the kids are proficient or better. Uh, and that's just not good enough for what the economy needs, for what the kids themselves need, for what upward mobility needs. And there's still big gaps between groups uh, that uh, don't need to be there if we were doing a better job of educating people. All right. So that's what we need a vision for, liberal or conservative. I mean, without a vision, yes. the people perish. Without a vision of what we're about, what we're up to, uh, educational perish or flat. Precisely. Okay. Yeah. Let's get into the into the book. Uh, when you finished and read all the essays, did you get a sense that there's, first of all, a vision or a consensus or a rough consensus among your authors or some of your authors? If if I were to say, okay, you had these twenty uh, public uh, philosopher types uh, talking about the conservative vision of education, did certain um, agree, consensus agreed upon elements emerge? One, two, three, four. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the conclusion where Mike Petrilli and I try to sort of generalize across this vision, uh, we really end up with three large um, semi-consensus among the writers. As you know, from having been one, we gave writers their, their freedom to kind of go in whatever direction they wanted, and people went in different directions. Some focused, yourself included, on content and curriculum, others on, 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 on character and, and, and ethics, others on uh, patriotism and civics. We ended up with sort of three large conclusions. Um, the one is that uh, the citizenship aspect of education, uh, history, civics, uh, um, all of that needs a whole lot more attention than it's been getting, uh, and, and, and that is provocative to, uh, to to progressives because we end up talking about things like patriotism or um, appreciating America's successes as well as her failures. Yeah. So citizenship, the second was, is character. Um, we summarized it as let us restore character, virtue, and morality to the head of the education table where they belong. 
there's been very little attention to uh, character. There is, you know, a lot of current attention on the progressive side to what's called social emotional learning, but that's not quite the same thing. Uh, that has or can have more to do with feeling good than with being a good person. Uh, and so character issues were second. Um, and then the, uh, the third issues are, uh, we call it conferring dignity, respect, and opportunity upon every youngster, which is a kind of code way of saying not everybody needs to be told that they got to go to a four-year college, and we've got to have a system that makes uh, decent, rewarding, honorable, respectable pathways um, into uh, dignity and being needed whichever direction you go from high school. And that, of course, presumes a solid base under the high school. That is to say, everybody gets a solid basic education. Uh, but there's been too much college for everybody, and that's leaving a lot of people in the lurch. You uh, you talked about character and the importance of character. Um and you talked about choice and how conservatives were kind of wedded to choice, but maybe, maybe solely or or, or exclusively yeah. or too much. Yeah. Um, uh, the three C's. You know, maybe being a little parochial here. When I was secretary and you were assistant secretary, I talked about the three C's: choice, uh, character, and content. Yeah. Um, and in my essay, I guess you know, to borrow from Saint Paul, I said, and the greatest of these is content. I don't know what you yeah. got in education unless you have content. You're correct, and we sort of pre- we kind of presuppose first of all that choice is going to continue and should continue. It's a, it's just not a it's just not a silver bullet. It's not a cure all, but it's an important element. Uh, I already talked about character, and uh, and and your essay did the best job in the book. And Senator Alexander liked your essay the best of all the ones in the book he wrote. Uh, that you 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 underscore the the content. You got to know stuff and. Uh, if you don't know stuff, then none of the rest of this is going to do you very much good. You can have you can have um, sound character and um, and good values, but not be able to actually do anything or understand anything if you haven't had a content rich education. So yes, uh, the three C's are all present in this book. Uh, it's not organized quite in that structure, but no. it's but they're all there. Well, thank you. You're very generous to me. But while you're at it. Uh, let me just say that one other thing I was after, quite apart from pushing content, which I think is, you know, is really suffering in, in modern education, contemporary education, uh, is to come back to something else she said at the beginning, which is uh, the need for bipartisanship. And so the story I told uh, about Boston um, and uh, Massachusetts was a story about bipartisan cooperation. And I said yeah. there, there was this, you know, it, people ask me, was there ever a golden age? Uh, you know, and, and I say, yeah, Boston in what was it, late nineties? Is that, is that what we're talking about? Uh, early two thousands. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, and, and, and that was it. And it was a bipartisan effort with a Republican governor, Bill Well, the Democrat who defeated uh, for governor, John Silber running this committee, lots of liberals like Tom Birmingham in the Senate. Uh, and, uh, somehow this consensus was forged where the teachers had to meet standards, students had to meet standards, and by God, they did. And uh, what was that uh, figure? I, th- I, think, I think I got it first from you, that if Massachusetts had been a country in what year, it would have been 10th in the world? Yeah. Massachusetts is the only state in the U.S. that has participated successfully in the PISA test as if it were a country. And its results are right up there with the, with the strong countries, with the... Uh, 
with the Asian Tigers, with the uh, best of the European countries. Um, Massachusetts um, has racked up over the last 20 years the strongest education track record of any state. Still? Uh, it's plateauing also, and the people there in Massachusetts are, are fretting about the fact that they don't see gains being made today. Yeah. Uh, they have largely preserved over this 20, almost quarter century now, a this bipartisan thing, even as governors have changed and legislators have changed and so on. And they've been a model um, for that. Uh, we don't have uh, any other states that I can name where bipartisanship has produced, sustained bipartisanship, let me add, uh, has produced uh, serious education gains. We got a few states, uh, mostly Republican, where 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 being red has also produced some good. Florida and Texas have done some really strong things um, and and stuck with them over time, uh, though they're fading a bit in Texas right now. But yeah, Massachusetts a miracle, as it's known in the trade, is 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 really quite notable, and it was bipartisan. Now, whether anything can be retrieved of that kind in 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 2020 america i don't know i don't know but uh it sure would be a good thing and that if it can't be retrieved that would be attributable to mainly uh lack of agreement on the fundamentals of what goes into making this car you know the pieces the parts or the lack of bipartisanship certainly the latter um certainly the latter just people unable to agree on much of anything um, in in any realm now it's not it's not a total loss. Let me say uh, in in also in deference to to our friend Senator Alexander, um, even the United States Congress over the last uh, five years has shown some ability to do bipartisan education legislation, um, and um, it's been an exception to the rule. But it's 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 it's, it's noteworthy. So I don't want to say this is completely hopeless. If Congress can do it, uh, maybe a state can do it uh, or do it again. But there is some, uh, shall we say, parting of the ways over fundamentals. Well, I think everybody would agree that reading, writing, and arithmetic are important, and you could probably get pretty good agreement on on much of your content point. Again, uh, how to how to change the system and what to give priority to is still going to produce a lot of disagreement uh, between left and right. Uh, with left, as I say, heading toward a, a, a kind of social justice view of, 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 of the world and the right heading toward a uh, let everybody go off and do their own thing view of the world. Where's the lever, Archimedes? How do you move the world here? I mean, what's the lever? How do you, how do you, first of all, you said Washington, then you said states. I assume yeah. governors are more important here than presidents or secretaries of education, with all due respect to the jobs you and I used to have. I mean, we didn't have those two jobs. We had secretary, assistant secretary. <laughs> but but, but the state is more important than the federal government, though the federal government can send the right signals and encourage yes. the right behaviors, I assume. Yes, exactly. States are in the driver's seat, and uh, uh, governors and legislatures and state boards of education and other state policymakers make the, really the key decisions about uh, um, about what's going on. I mean, in the, in the state of Maryland, um, where I live and occasionally have lived, uh, there is a big effort underway right now to reform the education system. The legislature is chewing on it. Uh, at the moment, the governor is opposing it. Uh, I don't know whether they're going to reach agreement, but it's a pretty good package that, if enacted, in my view, would produce some pretty important uh, gains for Maryland. 
Uh, so states are where most of the action is, and um, some of them are focusing on education and others aren't. We're talking to Chester E. Finn, uh, who is the co-author uh, with uh, or co-editor with Michael Petrilli of a book of very interesting essays, How to Educate an American, a Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. Um, is, is it the case that still that most Americans think American education is not doing so well, but that their, their school is doing well? That's question one. Question two yeah. is this. I just read an essay, I think in, 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 uh, in, in your guys, the Fordham, uh, a newsletter, uh, that, um, written by one of your regular contributors, uh, saying, well, I, you know, I, I can, there's a good school out there. I think it's in Reno. Um, and I thought, my gosh, is that, is there only one? Um, mm-hmm. I, I take it one may look and, with some frustration, maybe say a little something about Texas, a little something about Louisiana, a little something about Massachusetts. But you can't really hold up a state as a model now. But there are good schools here and there, right? If I said to you, I want to go on a trip for a year, and all I want to do is spend a week at 52 good schools, you could find them for me? Uh, sure. I think you could probably find 365 of them okay. if you wanted to spend a day at every school. Okay. Yeah. But it's a country with 100,000 schools, okay. and the great conundrum here has always been uh, not finding a good school. It's replicating it or scaling it, uh, and that's a really big challenge. Uh, some of our better charter school networks uh, are doing a pretty good job of slowly growing from you know one to ten to fifty schools and maintaining their quality and I mean the 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 infamous or notorious and very successful Eva Moskowitz in New York City for example has been growing her Success Academy network of charter schools they're up to thirty or forty schools now within New York City and basically they're all good um, and uh, there are other examples of. Uh, I'll call them networks, uh, and, and, and they're even little school systems where you could say all three high schools in Dublin, Ohio are good high schools. Uh, but goodness, um, at the 100,000 level, uh, or at, even at the municipal level, or even in the county of Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live with its, uh, uh, 140 schools, um, you know, they range from superb to dismal. And uh, replicating success is 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 not like uh, making jelly beans. It's uh, really hard to do, and it's 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 a it's a continuing problem. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, what's the cost of this? I, I don't mean give me a dollar number, but by f- failing to uh, you know d- do what we know, and I take it we know a lot, but maybe we don't mm-hmm. do what we know. Yes. Be, be a little more descriptive, particular about the costs. The, the, you know, what do we spend on education, including higher ed? Six hundred billion dollars a year? Is it something like that? Is that right? It's closer to closer to seven hundred now. Okay. And the and at the K twelve level, we're pretty national average is pretty close to fourteen thousand dollars a kid. Wow. Uh, and that's a lot of money. And if you think about even just uh, even just twenty kids in a classroom. Uh, you pretty quickly get up to uh, something in the neighborhood of $280,000 per classroom of public expenditure. And you, first of all, say, where in the hell is it going? Because it's certainly not all going to the teacher in that classroom. Um, and uh, it's not a, there are places that are short on money. There are schools that are short on money and resources, there's no doubt about that. But uh, uh, the system as a whole has plenty of money in it. Uh, and uh, we're 
we're not underspending on education. You can say we're underpaying teachers, but you can also point out that we've got so many more teachers per hundred students than we used to. Yeah. Uh, but that's so one of the reasons they're not getting paid very well is that the country has, I think, I think foolishly um, opted to hire more people rather than better people and pay them better over the years. Uh, and uh, the teacher student ratio is more important than the quality of the teacher. Exactly. And yeah. by, by, by lowering the ratio, it's caused many more teachers to get hired, but it also means that the pay they, are, they get has not, has not risen. Instead, it, the money's been put into hiring more people. And that doesn't produce a higher quality teacher. And it does produce smaller classes. But if you ask anybody uh, whether they'd rather have a few more kids in the class with a great teacher or fewer kids in the class with a mediocre teacher, almost everybody goes for the great teacher. And they should because that makes a big difference. Uh, it makes a big difference. So there, there's plenty of money in the system, but we aren't spending it well and we aren't getting the, re- the results that it needs. And there's really no country in the world that on average, is spending more on its schools than the United States. And yet, a lot of them are getting better results. When you said uh, choose between, uh, you know, taking a few more kids in the class, say 25, and have a good yeah. teacher, or drop it to 20 or 15 and have a poor teacher, most people would go for the first. Will the teachers, yeah. Would the teachers vote that way? Would the teachers' union vote that way? The union wouldn't. If, if you survey individual teachers, they'd rather have more pay in return for more kids in the classroom. They would. Okay. Um, the unions won it both ways, and for back to Maryland for a second, the big argument over the reform plan that's in the legislature is that it, uh, implementing it will cost a couple billion dollars uh, eventually uh, per per year, and that's a big number for Maryland. And I was on the commission that um, made these recommendations, and. Um, I had a couple of beefs with the, I think the recommendations are very good, but I ended up with uh, two complaints and I wrote them uh, in the commission report. Uh, one is that um, the union people there were absolutely unwilling to consider any offsetting cost reductions, such as putting a couple more kids in the classroom, uh, even though teachers are going to get a whole bunch more money uh, if this plan goes through. But they were un- absolutely unwilling to say, let's go from 22 kids to 24 or 25. Uh, per classroom and saving some money for the taxpayer that way. Absolutely obdurate on that point. My other complaint, incidentally, is that Maryland is very choice averse and uh, the commission could not bring itself to endorse any form of school choice uh, in the state of Maryland. So those are my complaints with Maryland. I still think there's merit to the plan, but uh, on the on the money point, uh, the unions wouldn't uh, concede anything. Some people say, uh, well, you got some other alternatives. Other things are going on in America apart from schools. One is, uh, you know, there's the home. And, uh, uh, you know, are more and more people doing homeschooling? Is it growing? Uh, a few more. Yeah, I think we're up to about 4% of kids are being homeschooled. It's more, it's twice what it was, but it's still a pretty small number. How do they stack uh, up overall with kids from traditional schools? Well, the truth is that nobody knows because the homeschooled kids don't take any any of these tests that we no. allow compare that make for comparison. Uh, and the, the best I can tell from from the it's mostly anecdote and example is that they're wonderful homeschooled kids, uh, and they're horrible examples too. Yeah. So there's no general data on the because you know the homeschool is done by parents sometimes with the aid of curriculum that comes in from sometimes very good and sometimes very bad online sources 
And uh, it's up to the parents, some of whom are very smart and well-educated and care about their kids' learning, and others are just, just um, sort of strap the kid to the computer and let him sit at the kitchen table and hope he learns something. Yeah. All right, but but it's not likely an option that's going to grow much bigger, right? I mean, not, parents no, are too busy and there's too much family breakup and other things, right? Exactly. Yeah. I don't see homeschooling as a big solution. I also want to come back for a second to the point you, you glanced over a few minutes ago, which is the complacency that uh, most Americans have about their own school. Uh, it's a fact. It's a problem. Uh, if you think your kid's school is fine the way it is, uh, you're not going to get very animated to change it or to make your kid do something different. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of evidence that uh, the overwhelming majority of Americans think their own kid's school is okay the way it is. Uh, people who get sort of, sort of gypped by that are, of course, a poor minority uh, families whose kids are trapped in awful schools um, who know their kid's school isn't very good. But uh, uh, they don't have very many options. Uh, incidentally, that brings us back to school choice. Let, let them escape their bad school for a better one. The other thing people say to kind of ameliorate this uh, flattening of progress in the schools is they say, well, get them into the work workplace sooner, you know, um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll teach them there. Americans may not learn a lot at school, but they learn a lot at work, uh, especially in apprenticeship programs and uh, get, get them in sooner. And uh, I noticed, you know, there's a, you know, there's some interest in, you know, in some forward looking companies and getting people in, you know, right out of high school or even some in high school training programs. Uh-huh. And then, Get ahead of the game, and you know you got you got a couple of chances to learn, not just in school, but you can learn on the job. Correct, and there is a rekindling of interest in in the schools in what's now used to be called vocational education is now called career and technical education, and there's some swell examples of high schools and community colleges uh, that team up with uh, uh, employers uh, to. Uh, help kids get the kind of practical education on top of a basic academic education and get real work experience and then often get industry certification and end up with real jobs. This relates to the point about not everybody needs to go to college. And we really neglected the the employment preparation side of education in the U.S. over the years. One of the reasons that a bunch of those other countries in Asia and Europe do better than we do, incidentally, is that they don't assume that everybody should go to a a traditional academic college. And instead, they've got very sophisticated uh, technical training institutes that uh, are a really solid alternative to college for kids. A lot of kids go to them. So and that and then, of course, more 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 learning takes place um, uh, in the workforce on the work site. Uh, if employers are willing to to provide it, and if they want to keep people on and help people rise through the ranks and things like that, that's a little harder to see that happening in 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 places where there's you know huge turnover and where the employer doesn't take much interest in 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 the careers or mobility of the workforce. But um, yeah, we've been paying over much attention to uh, for egalitarian reasons, not bad reasons getting everybody into college, and that's not working for a lot of people. It's one of the reasons there's so much college dropout and so much college debt, uh, and so many people wandering around that have college debt but no college degree uh, is that's because right. they they probably shouldn't have gone in the first place. Yeah, it's something like 40%, 45% don't finish uh, who start, or at least don't finish in six years. You know? 
Correct. Partly because so, they really weren't prepared for college level work, and partly because college probably isn't where they belong. Is that changing the charm and allure of college? Is that is it downshifting some? I see movement in both directions. I see uh, clear evidence of um, uh, increasing interest in getting people into more different kinds of colleges, but also uh, more and more evidence that the college degree is not worth what it used to be, depending, of course, on which college you go to and what you major in. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, uh, so it's, it's going in several different directions. The colleges are, if I may say, contributing to the problem because a bunch of them now, especially community colleges, are, are short on students. So they are doing everything they can to woo kids into their college. Um, and with the financing that comes with the kid, either either in a form of a loan that the kid takes out or the form of a state appropriation that the college gets. Uh, and I don't think that the college's uh, hunger for uh, more students is doing the students any good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that can lead to dropping standards, right? And to taking kids who really shouldn't go to college or don't right. belong there, don't really want to go there at all. And, uh, I mean, we tend in this country to just associate college with uh, uh, sort of Harvard, Yale, Princeton types, and uh, they've got plenty of applicants. But uh, community colleges and a lot of the four-year uh, state colleges and a lot of four-year private colleges are hurting for students. And... Um, so that's making them not only have no admission standards, but also actually kind of going out of their way to to lure young people to come. And uh, that includes luring a bunch of young people who aren't prepared to succeed in college and who maybe really don't want to go to college and who borrow money to go to college and end up not completing. And it's a mess. And therefore, we end up with this, you know, eight gazillion dollar student loan problem that, right. that is currently in the news quite a lot. Yeah, one eight trillion, I think now. Uh, amazing. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we have the college dropout problem. We have the student loan pro- problem. Mm-hmm. We have going to the wrong place or studying the wrong thing problem. We have in K twelve a flattening of results. What's the wash that this all comes out in? What, say something about America it's standing in the world, not in terms of scores, but international competition, the vibrancy of nations, the strength and power of the United States vis a vis. Where? China? Other places? Well, a lot of places, um, including the, a lot of Asian countries, not just China, but um, uh, you know, Vietnam and, and Korea and Singapore. And you can go down a list of Asian countries, but also um, the well-run European countries, uh, Germany and Switzerland and, uh, and, and uh, so on. Um, I mean, the cost for, for America is multiple. There is a there certainly is a human capital cost. I mean, we are really not uh, uh, maximizing our human capital at a time when uh, smart, educated people are important for economic success, for national security success, for cultural vibrancy, for a country holding together as a unum, not just a pluribus. I mean, there are a whole bunch of, of costs there. There are also equality costs. Uh, we really are not um, uh, giving uh, kids who, who come from poor and minority backgrounds um, a fair shot at uh, the best America has to offer or at up, the upward mobility that we worry about in, in, in the country today and the coming apart problems that uh, our authors have been writing about, which are for real. We want kids uh, from disadvantaged backgrounds to be able to, 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 to rise, uh, to be upwardly mobile, 
they got to have a better education than they're getting. So there's a human capital cost. There's a, there's a, there's an equity cost. There's certainly a, a economic productivity cost to the country. Uh, and um, and there's also the the coming apart problem that I mentioned. Uh, if people are retreating into their their enclaves or their ghettos or their gated communities or their private schools, um, this is this is not good for a country that's already struggling with uh, with call it togetherness and civic uh, civic uh, well being. Yeah, you look at the world, and uh, you know, and and. America is still very strong, strongest nation in the world still, right? And still the envy of the world and still where people want to come. How can that be with a flat and wasteful and, uh, you know, often corrupt and uh, corrupting educational institutions? How can that be? Because it's well, – go ahead. As you know, the country's got a lot of redeeming qualities yeah. like full employment full employment and prosperity and a generally high standard of living and generally speaking rule of law and generally speaking safe streets and generally speaking not too much persecution and uh uh, and 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 terrorism uh so we've got a lot going for us yeah okay country Uh, and i'm glad we do plus second and third chances right i mean i'm back to my point about school People can yeah. mess up in school and still do well in America. I mean, it's not, not a great idea to start your life that way, but it happens. It's the, a good thing to be a, to have a forgiving, a, a second-chance kind of country. It uh, also probably means that people don't take the first go-around as seriously as they should. So I think there's some cost to being a second-chance country, but there's a lot of benefit to it. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, yeah, let's wrap it up here. And again, I want to mention the book and urge people to get it. How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision uh, for Tomorrow Schools, edited by Michael Petrilli and Chester E. Finn. And we're talking to Chester E. Finn, uh, prefaced by Senator Lamar Alexander. Where are you now? Optimistic, pessimistic, guarded optimism, guarded pessimism, unguarded pessimism. Where Where are you? <laughs> well, I'm pumped about the potential, and partly the potential actually outlined in this book uh, for a kind of rekindling um, of, of uh, ideas and interests uh, on the right. I'm less optimistic about uh, uh, the bipartisanship problem, though that goes way beyond education right now. Uh, and I'm genuinely worried about the about the flattening of actual demonstrable results. So I I, I want to see another round of uh, purposeful and sustained reform is what I want to see. And um, I'm I'd say very guarded in my optimism, but not dep- not depressed about uh, whether we can make that happen. Well, I, I think of those uh, Isaiah in the Old Testament theoretical pessimism and practical optimism you know he says in the end it's all wind and ashes but uh <laughs> but uh, I, I remember our old friend uh you knew him i know him irving crystal used yes. to say we should be like those uh soviet generals of old who when they're shaving in the morning whatever their view of the world and ultimate outcomes would while they're shaving say how can we hurt the usa today you know opt- optimism about the task of the day before you uh so yes. you know i mean uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, as I said in the introduction of you, you know more about American education than anybody. I think you're the you're the you're the, the guy of record here on it. You know, can we? Uh, you're pumped, you said, but uh, is it realistic to be pumped? Mm. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got your answer. <laughs> 
guardedly optimistic about the potential. Let's, uh, I, I'm, I'm not about to give up. Shall we put it that way? Yeah. And, and finally, very retail for a, a parent with a child yeah. in school. What's yeah. the insurance policy? I mean, what, what can you do? Supplement, read, read to them, give them books, take them places. What, you well, know, it, it's still an important job. Not every, I used to say all the time, you got tired of hearing it probably when I was sec of, sec of ed. Not every parent's a, not every teacher's a parent, but every parent's a teacher. And uh, uh, the only, the only piece of original um, research I ever did was calculate how much of a child's time does that child spend in school versus not in school. And um, the astonishing answer is that between birth and age 18, the typical American kid spends only 9% of his time on earth in a schoolhouse. The other 91% is spent outside the schoolhouse. Uh, and most of that's in the control of the parents, uh, one way or another. It includes sleep, sleeping time, to be, to be fair. Uh, and so uh, parents and uh, grandparents and neighborhoods and communities and civil society institutions have an enormous influence. And so, so for better or worse, the, the media and the electronics that, uh, okay. and yeah. those, those screens, we've got a lot going on outside of school that has an enormous influence for good or ill. Uh, on how kids turn out. Let me just hold on to that point for a second. You and I and John Cribb did a book years ago, The Educated Child. When, when was that? Ninety something was it? Yeah, I was. I was getting on to twenty years ago. Okay, um, and we we talked in the book, I think, toward the end about calculators and electronic equipment, and this was, you know. The other place in the schools. Now we have all these gadgets, all this technology, all this internet. Everybody's yep. got their iPhone. Has it helped or hurt overall? It's mostly not helping. Uh, it can help. There's plenty of good stuff, but that's parents' job to uh, monitor and see that what kids are getting off of their devices and screens is good for them, not bad for them, yeah. and not even neutral, because they're certainly going to be spending a lot of time looking at screens and devices. And so um, parents and uh, uh, other caring adults have to have to take charge here. Uh, I don't think it's uh, it's going to work at all if we just leave kids to, to entertain themselves. Yeah. When you started back there a paragraph ago or so and said, you know, 9% of the child's life, those yeah, early years school. is is in school, and the other ninety one percent, I thought you were going to say, is spent online. You know, <laughs> well, too much of the ninety one percent is spent online. But uh, you know, even the really good schools, the 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 very best of the charter schools, only get up to about twelve percent or or so yeah. of the kid's life. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, the online and on screen part is pretty important, and um, if adults neglect it or even encourage it in a, in 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 Thank you. Talk to you forever, but uh, we'll leave it at 40 minutes. Uh, thanks for your generous uh, allocation of time to us. And again, folks, the book, uh, How to Educate an American, The Conservative Vision for Tomorrow Schools. Thank you, Checker. You're very welcome. All the best. Well, that's just about it for this episode. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. And you know what? We'll catch up next week.